I have water, I have cough drops. <laughs> I have two offers to go over to New Leaf to get me anything I want. <laughs> I feel really well cared for, thank you all. <laughs> I think what I most needed was to have the fan off. So I think we need to be cleaned, is what I think. So. But you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that wasn't the sitting that I ordered up. And we so often want the sitting that we ordered up. And we, whether you're coming to an evening of practice or whether you're coming to a retreat, you know, there's that way in which we go and we think, ah, I'm going to have 45 minutes of quiet. My mind will at least be peaceful for a little bit. <clears throat> I'm going to have 10 days of retreat or three days of retreat or whatever it is. And surely that will be wonderful. And then you go to the sitting and you cough all the way through the sitting or something comes up in your mind, you know, the most difficult situation in your life and you're crazed, or you go to the retreat and you get sick or, there, you know, something happens that makes it difficult. <clears throat> but none of those things keep us from practicing. And the question always is, where is the liberation in this moment? And my own sense is, and I, I know I'm in good company on this one, <clears throat> that it's not like liberation is somewhere out there, you know, way out there. Maybe if you practice for the next 50 years until you're practically dying on the cushion and work really, really hard and <clears throat> Sooner or later, you will get liberated. Um, my own sense is that it's much more like learning a geography. One of the def definitions of nibbana, or nirvana, or liberation, is there is no greed, there's no hatred, and there's no delusion. The mind is completely without any of those things. <clears throat> and of course, to be fully liberated, utterly liberated, to have the mind of a Buddha, the mind would always be completely without greed, without hatred, without delusion. So not being pushed and pulled by desire and aversion and seeing absolutely what is true in every moment. That's a pretty big goal, you know. But what I do know is true is that there are moments, and there are moments for some of us where that's true. For maybe a few seconds, 30 seconds maybe, you have a mind that is really free. And then it all comes back, right? Or, and then I think the art of it is to keep finding those moments over and over again so that you're stringing them closer and closer and closer together. So we've been talking in these recent weeks about liberation, about the conditions for liberation, about you know, needing to 
work with our suffering in a transformative way. And then all of the stages that come after that, and last week we talked a lot about tranquility, and actually the topic for tonight is happiness. So it's kind of wonderful to think that in these teachings of the Buddha, you know, there's a lot of the stages that are about joy and tranquility and happiness. And these are the immediate conditions, the precursors, if you will, for um, being able to really focus the mind and to be able to see things as they are. Those are the next two steps, actually. So this place of happiness, it's interesting also, it's it's not the delight that comes early on in this list. It's not the what's sometimes called rapture, which is kind of exuberant and sometimes has a lot of energy associated with it. <clears throat> this is a, a happiness, a kind of happiness that comes after a lot of practice, a lot of practice. And the image that's given in the suttas is, you know, the first part of the journey is like, you know, the, the image of the person going through the desert and you know, and they're really struggling, and they're thirsty, and they're kind of lost, and and then they see the oasis out there, you know, and, and uh, <clears throat> they begin, as they get closer, and they realize it's not a mirage, it really is an oasis, you know, there's some kind of trust, and ultimately they get there, and, and you could imagine if you were struggling lost in the desert and you got to the oasis and there's this water and the shade and you would jump into the water and pour it all over you and just drink as much as you could and how wonderful and how excited it would be. None of that is the happiness. The happiness is the image that's given to us is after all of that, when you've had as much water as you can possibly taken, you're rehydrated, you're bathed, you've rinsed out your clothes, maybe a little something to eat, there's dates on the palm trees or whatever, and then there you are resting in the shade. And that's the place that, that's the kind of image to think about, that, that it's that, ah, oh, I've gotten there. So, one of the things that's true about the mind as we begin to practice, and all of you know this, is that, I mean, did anybody have the ideal set tonight? You know? So often what comes as we set are these different things that get in the way. And there's all different ways of looking at them, although when we're really considering Um, seeing things clearly, usually the list that's most often referred to is one that's pretty familiar, I think, to a number of you, but maybe not all of you, which is the list that's called the hindrances. So these are the things that really block being able to see things as they are. And when happiness arises, it's when these hindrances begin to not be there. So, The hindrances are desire, greed, wanting, that incessant leaning out, wanting material things, sense pleasures, 
wanting to become something or wanting not to be something. So anybody have any of that tonight? You know, the wanting mind? You probably did, you know. Maybe it's just dinner. Maybe it's just for Mary Grace to stop coughing. Maybe it's, you know, wanting, I don't know, the Lakers to win tonight. Whatever it is, you know, and the wanting mind comes up and we begin to lean out. Or if it's not the wanting mind, it's the aversive mind, right? The not wanting mind. I don't like it. This is terrible. Why doesn't she stop coughing? You know, can't Jason just throw her out and sit up in front and teach the sitting tonight instead? Or whatever, you know. And so the mind gets going about how we don't like it. Or maybe your body hurt tonight. Or, you know, something happened today that you don't like. And so there's a lot of aversion in the mind. <clears throat> maybe you're just restless. You know? It's just hard to sit still. The mind keeps moving here, goes there, up, down, back and forth, around and around. It doesn't settle. You can't get it to settle. feels kind of itchy in your body or antsy. And you're just consumed with restlessness. Or maybe it's the reverse. It's the end of a long day. You got up early this morning. You didn't sleep so well last night. And you are tired. And so it's sloth and torpor that has come to visit you. Or maybe you're just feeling a little skeptical about this practice. You've done it for a while, you're not so sure it works. And you've got a lot of doubt going on. You know, Maybe you shouldn't be here at all. It's time to give up and just live a life of hedonism. Something like that. So, these are all... You know, the good news is... I get this comment a lot on retreats. The good news is these are so well known. They're on lots of lists. You know, everybody knows about these things. Everybody gets them. So if you're afflicted with one or another, it's not that your mind is any different. Your mind is quite normal. But it's helpful, if we're really going to see clearly, it's helpful to kind of get them quieted down and to begin to work with them so that they're not so present in your sitting. And in the end, maybe some of the time anyway, not there at all. In a daily sitting, when we're coming to a group like this, that's not so easy because it's hard to get that kind of continuity of practice. But most of us, I think, have our favorite hindrance. Or maybe it's not your favorite, but it's the one that's around, you know, most of the time. And so some of you may, you know, have minds that are really consumed with wanting. Others of you may be sort of more aversive, and that's the lead hindrance. Some of you may be really restless kinds of people or really sleepy kinds of people. Some of you may be not so sure about what you're doing, whether it's the right thing to do. So in, a, in an everyday practice, I think one of the best ways to work with the hindrances is to pick one and go, okay, you know, I'm going to work just with desire or just with um, sloth and torpor. So there's a couple of things you can do. Each hindrance has an antidote 
And so there are places that you can reflect on that will begin to balance out the hindrance. So if your mind is filled with wanting, then the usual recommendation is to reflect on impermanence, to know that anything that you want, any, any sense pleasure that you want, any becoming that you want to get to, is going to be impermanent, because that's the nature of everything. And, you know, there's a lot of, if you read some of the monastic literature, you know, they want you to reflect on death and decay and, and you know, the, your best beloved that, or the, the guy or the gal that you've just met that you're really wanting is, you know, to imagine them as a corpse or something like that. And, and that's supposed to kind of balance it out. You could imagine that it might, you know, you might not be so interested. And I actually had a good friend on a, who to, went on a retreat once, and at the time she was single, and she discovered, and she was a good practitioner, she is a good practitioner. And partway into the retreat, she discovered she was having what we call a Vipassana romance. And she'd seen somebody on the retreat that she really thought looked interesting. But she was a pretty savvy practitioner, is a savvy practitioner. And, um, she, she knew, it, you know, she didn't have any, she didn't know this guy, you know, he just had nice sweaters and sat straight and looked like he was a serious practitioner. So she had all these great stories about how fabulous he was. And so she thought, you know, I'm just going to try another story. And so she made up another story about how, you know, he looked good, but he wasn't so hot. And he was kind of mean and, you know, rude and this and that and the other thing. And she told herself that story quite intentionally. Poor guy, he never knew. But you know, she said after a few days, he just didn't look so interesting. She'd kind of balanced out that wanting, you know, with the awareness that even if the goodness was there, it wasn't going to last. I never did find out what happened when she met him. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? So, and then the reverse is true. If, you're, if you have a mind that's filled with aversion and even out-and-out -out hatred, the recommend, recommendation is that you begin to balance it with loving-kindness practice, with the metta practice that we do at the end of every sitting. And then um, restlessness. Unfortunately, the antidote for restlessness is concentration, which usually makes you feel like you're going to die. Because there you are, you know, antsy and the mind being wiggly and you're kind of nailing your feet to the floor and saying, it's just with the breath, you know, just with this very moment. And it works, actually. And sloth and torpor, sleepiness, there's lots of things, you know, standing and doing walking practice and practice with your eyes open. Getting enough rest, actually, is also on the list. And then doubt, you know, the antidote to doubt is talking with good friends who are in the Dharma, listening to your favorite talks on MP3 recordings or reading your favorite Dharma book, that kind of thing that brings some nourishment and, and the voices of other people who have some sense of trust. So you can begin to create, you know, if you have your favorite hindrance, you can begin to work with an antidote on that hindrance and try to find a way so that it's not so much there, you know, gradually over a period of time, um, the mind <coughs> has fewer of them. 
And then, you know, the actual practice itself, really coming with some degree of energy, focusing the mind, concentrating, that also the hindrances tend to dissipate just with the practice because that concentrated mind more and more sees clearly. So we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But as we move towards concentration, there are fewer hindrances. So, so there's that way of, of um, dissipating them somewhat as you move towards concentration. So it's said that, so when, when the mind doesn't have the hindrances, I mean, you can imagine, you know, maybe you've been afflicted with terrible aversion or lots of restlessness, and finally you have a sitting when that's not true. And the, what the Buddha, um, he's, uh, I found a quote that says, the Buddha compares the happiness of, of abandoning the hindrances, of, of, of subduing them, to the happiness a person would experience if unexpectedly freed from debt. All your debts are gone. Ooh. Or cured of a serious illness. or released from prison, or set free from slavery, or led to safety at the end of a desert journey. So it's that sense of, that comes sometimes of, of, oh, you know, I'm, the mind is a little quieter. And I think, again, like all of these places, it's not it's not an all-at-once kind of thing. It's not like all of a sudden there are no hindrances. I think it's very often, oh, there was so much less restlessness today. Or, look at that. You know, I had a really good night's rest last night. Maybe you're sitting at a better time of day for you, and you have a sitting with no sleepiness. And there's such happiness that comes, a sense of, ease and gladness. Um, And that's exactly what allows us then to um, relax even more into our experience and so that the mind will settle into really deep concentration and focus. And then when we have that kind of concentration and focus is when we can clearly see the nature of all things. So I wanted to keep this short today because I also wanted to just see if there were questions about working with the hindrances. There often are. Some of you are relatively new, some of you are not. So um, I think I'll stop here and see if there are any questions about anything I've said or about this particular list or about how to work with any one or all of the hindrances. The hindrances do not, it would be lovely if they came one at a time, but they don't. Sometimes they team up, and sometimes you get them all at once. Um, So whatever your experience is, we're happy to take a look at it. So questions, please. Please. Um, Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
had this wonderful fit, feeling all focused, no other hindrances, great. And then this sort of creeping numbness and it's actually it. not a hindrance. Yeah. The aversion to it would be the hindrance. So, you know, there's pain in the body, right? It happens. There's numbness that happens. People always ask, and you haven't yet, but I'll answer it because you probably would go there sooner or later. Does it get to a point in your practice where your leg doesn't fall asleep? And my answer is I haven't found it yet. Um, So that's just sort of part of the deal, right? So the suggestion is that to the extent that you can, you give your attention to that experience that's happening, right? Name it, explore it. Sometimes, Sometimes going into it, like what exactly is this thing I call pain? and really beginning to notice that there's little pullings and there's burnings and there's needles. And And sometimes that gets so interesting that the aversion goes away. It's like, oh, okay. Sometimes not. There may come a point where you go, too much aversion, I need to move. And then you move. But don't move a lot. Don't move and move and move and move and move because the wiggly body usually creates a fairly wiggly mind. It's much better to move once or twice in the course of a sitting in a significant way. You may also discover, usually numbness in the legs means that you're sitting on the nerve in some way. It's not that you've cut off your circulation. That's one of the stories that comes up in the mind a lot. And you might discover, I have this thing that I do, if you watch me carefully, you'll see it once in a while, where I kind of just gently lift up and move my butt on the cushion and sit back down again. Sometimes I can just tighten my muscles and sit back down again, and that moves me just enough so that I'm not on the nerve anymore and the numbness goes away. You can play with it. Yeah. But the hindrance is actually the aversion. The pain's just, it's just a pain. It's, it's, it's suffering of a certain sort. It's such a distraction from where it was in no. place. And then <laughs> that's, that's the wanting to get somewhere. And one of the best instructions for practice that there is, is this is the way it is. And the way it is might be pain in your leg and you can practice with it. The way it was for me today was coughing. I could fuss and go, it's not supposed to be like this, I don't like it, how can I change it? And I certainly did my best to stop it, but it also was the way it was, yeah? It's interesting, that place. Please. Not to be. Wanting not to be. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit more and about how there might be? I'm particularly interested in the wanting to be nothing. I guess I kind of don't understand that very well. What might be an answer? Well, all of the, the antidote to all of the wanting is remembering impermanence, so that any becoming 
that you would want, you know, some change in your life, some blossoming into this or that, still not going to be permanent. You know, nothing is permanent. The same thing is true of, of wanting out of whether, I mean, most of us are not wanting not to be at all, but there's often a way that we want not to be this or not to be that. But <clears throat> even that's not necessarily, I mean, it's not permanent. Nothing is permanent. So it's all reflection on impermanence. Does that help? Yeah? Okay. I think that wanting to not be, mm-hmm. it can be like suicidal, mm-hmm. but it can also just be this feeling of being sick of everything. Yeah. Um, which I think we all can sometimes fall into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose then uh, remembering that everything is impermanent. Yeah. That you're not, that everything that you're sick of is impermanent. Yeah. Sometimes not impermanent enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we tend to think of not liking impermanence, but the truth is there are things that we wish were more impermanent. He's always both good yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Rick. Goal setting? It's usually a wanting to become. Ah, okay, great. Good question. <laughs> and we talk, what did we talk about at the beginning of the sitting? We talk about motivation, right? And intention. So, you know, is that not goals? It is, in a sense. Do we not talk about awakening or having a heart of compassion at some point or seeing deep insight? Those are all goals. So it's not that we don't have goals. Goals are very much like setting a compass course, right? I am going to go north. But, you know, there you are driving north to Sacramento and all of a sudden the freeway sign says Pacifica and you go, oh, wrong direction, right? So if you get really attached to gotta go north and then you beat yourself up because you're headed south or east or west, that's the place where it's, it's a problem. That's attachment and greed. If, if you notice, oh look, I'm off course, it's time to adjust, that's just fine. Does that help sort of clarify it a bit? Yeah. It's that place of uh, have to, having to have. It's sometimes it's hard to set a goal and go like, okay, where does this fit into Buddhism in general? Right. Like, we, I keep having to go back and say, okay, well, we're looking for less suffering so we can do things. Yeah. So we're not causing suffering or more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even within Buddhism, there are goals, like I was saying. So, so again, it's that place of there's the goal and this is the way it is. And so, like sometimes people say, well, it sounds like we're not supposed to work for social change. Well, no, I don't think that's true. But we, in order to really skillfully work for social change, we also have to really be able to be right here and now with the way things are without being aversive to it. Because that can be you know, we've all known, you know, 
pacifists who get really angry, right? And um, that's not so helpful always. Yeah. Yeah. Please, John. You know, what, like, sitting with most, most those thoughts coming and going, most thoughts are very important and they're easy to get rid of and just bring yourself back slowly all the time. But what about a time where what you're getting connected to is something that's much more important, like uh, how can I help a friend, or how can I do this, or things like that. Those are the things that that somehow are harder to get rid of because they don't feel as trivial as mm-hmm. most of the rest of the stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a good question, and um, I mean, it's not that thoughts are bad, right? And so, you know, you have a thought, I mean, the, the most important thing about thoughts is to realize they're not all bad, nor are they all good. And so, it's always a good idea to be a bit suspicious when a thought goes through, right? Is this a thought worth listening to? Because thoughts are just, they're just conditioned events in the mind, and some of them are trash. They are not worth anything. And it's really wonderful to get to the point where you think, this is not a useful thought at all. But once in a while, a really useful thought comes. And for the most part, if you can flag it in some way internally, I I don't suggest that you write it down during a sitting or anything, but kind of internally flag it. Maybe notice the, the sense of compassion or kindness that's there around it so that you're really paying some attention to it. Um, and then, you know, afterwards, tend to it. Um, if, it's a, if it's a difficult thought that is persistent, or even, I suppose, a, a, a positive thought, you can look underneath it. It's sort of like, well, what's, you know, what's underneath? Um, and sometimes what's underneath is fear or anger those kinds, some of the more aversive kinds of things. And when you pay attention to that, oh, I'm scared. Then that, that um, repetitive quality of the thought subsides. Yeah. Yeah, please, do I see one more? Oh, thank you, Jane. I'm wondering, when we meditate, when we practice, is it the idea that that's when we are really practicing clearing our mind? I mean, I'm building on what John was saying. You get those. In when do the insights come? Is it when you're not meditating? <laughs> when they damn they well please. Or is it just thoughts? <laughs> Yeah. When you're you are, we are not practicing just to clear the mind. <clears throat> That's not the goal of Buddhist practice at all. The goal of Buddhist practice is insight and wisdom. And insight really does come on its own schedule. It does not necessarily, it actually doesn't very often for many people, come on the cushion. Now, all of that said, this cycle that we're talking about, the next step after happiness, is in fact concentration. It, you do have to have a mind that can be still enough 
so that you can see clearly. The mind can get extraordinarily still. There are incredible states of tranquility and absorption. They're very altered state kinds of spaces. The problem is that they are not particularly productive of wisdom and you can get very, very attached because they're often very blissful. And then what you want is the state and you lose the interest in the wisdom. So what most often happens is that as you practice and as you develop enough concentration so that the mind can be still enough to look at your pain, your sadness, your desire to be something, your attachment to a goal, and wisdom can arise, it will come... There's, there's, a, there's a saying in the retreat world that most of the insights come in the dining room. Now, I have no idea why insights arise in the dining room. Maybe the mind relaxes just enough and then something comes up. There's a number of stories in the suttas and in some of the poems of the early monks and nuns where you know, someone lies down to rest after a really intense period of practice. They just put their head on the pillow or they reach out to turn out the light and boom! something, they go, oh my God, it's like that. And they see. And so it's those, oh, it's like that kinds of moments that can come walking, resting. Your job is to do the practice. If you do the practice, different kinds of insights, some of them just personal to you, some of them about your own history and psychology, some of them about the nature of self and impermanence and suffering, those will begin to come on their own. Yeah. Great question. Helps, Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, maybe that's a good one to stop on. Let me make a few. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.